Good morning. It's good to see you all, and it is uh, wonderful to see the sun this morning. It was uh, nice to see the warmth of a clear winter day here in Louisville. It's, uh, it's an honor to gather together. When we were together last, I lied. Not intentionally, but that's the way it turned out, as Mary told me, as soon as we were, for, we were through. I said we reserved time for... Uh, conversation about worship based upon the regulative principle and what we have been discussing and uh, and didn't. So let me rectify that this morning. We're going to pray. I'm just going to remind us of some of the issues that uh, that we're confronting and thinking about and uh, then we'll we'll get to conversation and then onward into Leviticus chapter 11 as uh, as time allows. But let's open with prayer. Father, we're just so thankful you've given us yet another glorious day in which we gather together. Father, we call this the Lord's Day because in honor of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, this is the day that begins our week with worship as our priority, and with Christians all over the world we gather together on this day, but we understand that every day is your day, that this is the day the Lord has made. And because of that, we will be glad and rejoice in it. Father, we thank you for the privilege of turning to your word. May we never lose the the thrill and gratitude of turning to your word to hear you speak. So, Father, we pray that you will bless this time together as we think about worship that pleases you. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So what we have seen in uh, Numbers, particularly in chapter 10, is that worship is a deadly dangerous business. People died because of evil worship. Worship that rebelled against God rather than honoring God. Worship that violated God's principles of worship. I discussed the fact that, that worship is, even to people outside of worship, even to people outside, it is a powerful teaching uh, reality of, of what the people worshiping actually believe. It is a testimony to God. And so worship, going back to the old English roots of worship, is actually a declaration of why we believe this God is worthy of our worship. Why we believe this priority rules and reigns in the church and in our lives. What are we saying? And thus, what we do in worship, what we say, what we sing, uh, whatever we do in worship is actually a reflection of what we actually believe. So I said actually twice there. Let's just make it emphatic. Uh, It is a demonstration of the deepest theological beliefs. And so you can't have a mismatch. Let's just acknowledge that. You can have a mismatch. You can have people who say they have a majestic, big God theology, but somehow that doesn't get translated into a majestic big God worship. And instead you have something else that's implied by the worship. There are inconsistencies in worship. And uh, in, in one sense, you can almost say some of these inconsistencies are the only reassurance that we have. In other words, to say the theology of this church is not as bad as it looks So we can talk about some examples of what that kind of uh, misrepresentation of God would look like, and and that is the issue here. And when Nadab and Abihu were struck down by God because they had burned strange fire on the altar, and instead they were set to fire themselves, that that is the issue. 
God will be rightly worshipped. The Father is seeking such to worship Him as we worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now, we looked at two different interesting sets of words. We looked at the normative principle versus the regulative principle. So, in other words, if you are a church or a body of churches and, and you're trying to figure out how worship is to be rightly done, then uh, you might come to different conclusions about how exactly the questions about worship are to be answered. The, the Anglican answer, and by the way, many Lutherans are in this basically same position, that Anglican answer is the normative principle. The normative principle says Scripture is to norm worship, but basically that means anything not expressly forbidden may, not, not shall, but may be permitted. So you can have uh, a pipe organ. You can have uh, vestments. You can have uh, a central altar. You can have a divided chancel. You can have... Uh, certain rites, uh, certain uh, acts of worship that are not explicitly mentioned in Scripture or commanded, but on the other hand, they're not forbidden, and by some kind of theological logic that can be included. So the normative principle is more expansive. The regulative principle, which is the traditional Calvinist or uh, Reformed principle, is much more restrictive. What may be done in worship is limited to what is commanded by God for worship. And the second couplet was the elements of worship and the circumstances of worship. And uh, that's of particular importance to those who would be held by the regulative principle. The elements of worship, prayer, confession, uh, singing of hymns, and uh, most importantly, the preaching of God's Word, and uh, various, uh, that, that gets expanded into various acts of prayer, again, following a biblical pattern of, uh, uh, of invoking God's presence, confessing the prayers of God's people, declaring uh, the, uh, the forgiveness and grace and mercy of God in Christ, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of benediction and blessing. At the end, you look at a traditional the most traditional Protestant worship service, and every one of those prayers is actually modeled on some biblical prayer. Now, I don't mean necessarily an isolated prayer, but some, some biblical background for that prayer is, uh, whether it's intercession or, or blessing, is, is going to be in the background. Other than that, you have the offering, uh, because you see that very much in Scripture and even in the New Testament. That's a distinction because remember that the Reformed uh, understanding of worship and of the regulative principles based upon a Reformed covenantal theology. And so of the, the fulfillment of the Old Covenant in the New Covenant, Baptists just get right to the point when uh, we describe our churches as New Testament churches. So that, that, that's kind of the lay of the land in terms of how Protestants have tried to think through these issues. So it's normative or regulative. It is uh, the elements versus the circumstances. The elements being what are commanded in Scripture. The circumstances being things that aren't 
scriptural in warrant or authority, but of necessity. So again, do we have a building? What time do we meet? Uh, do we have pews? You know, different things like that. Do you turn the lights on? Th those are circumstances. Okay, so having said that, as we get ready for discussion, just recognize it's easy to make those distinctions between normative and regulative and important, and they're real, and we sense it. We can see it. You can go to an Anglican service. You, you, you go to the service here. You recognize something different's going on. There are things in that service that are not in this service. But then, again, within the regulative principle, you can go to this Presbyterian church. You can go to this Reformed church. You can go to this Baptist church. Or you can go to any number of just Baptist churches that believe themselves to be held to the regulative principle, and they're doing different things. And, 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 but within, a, within a, a, a fairly narrow bandwidth, let me put it that way, not, not just cut loose, but within a bandwidth. But then uh, with the elements and the circumstances, the elements are pretty easy to establish because they're explicitly scriptural. But the circumstances loom sometimes larger than the elements in, in much of our conversation about worship or much of the the negotiation of worship. So, just a little background, which I will throw in further from church history for us to think about. It, it, and not all of church history, that's more than we can do here. But church history zeroing in on our tradition, our part of the family tree, coming right down to Third Avenue Baptist Church. So, if you look at the giant spectrum of traditional Christian Groupings, or what you might call the, the morphology of historical Christianity, you would see that there are, that you have first of all, you have primitive Christianity, you have uh, then uh, patristic Christianity. The big change comes with the second millennium. So the second 1,000 year period of the Christian church, the Great Schism, as it is called, came in 1050. And the Great Schism was between the East and the West. So what we know as Orthodoxy, Eastern Orthodoxy, Russian Orthodoxy, Syrian Orthodoxy, that became the church of the East associated with Byzantium, the capital of the Roman Empire of the East. And uh, the Catholic Church, which after all never has given up the claim to be Catholic, which means universal everywhere, uh, it, it became associated with the Western Roman Empire. And that became, of course, most of Europe. Now, put on a little footnote here. This week on the briefing, I'm going to be offering what I hope will be very helpful with the crisis in Ukraine and elsewhere, and that is to try to help listeners to understand uh, why what is going on right now with the dynamic of Russia and Ukraine is so deeply rooted in the history of Middle Europa, uh, of Middle Europe. And, and this, is, this is like... You know, Act 4, Scene 17. This is not something out of nowhere. It's a, it, it, and, and religion plays a far bigger part in this than people would recognize because what a, what a part of what Vladimir Putin has done is to reinvigorate the Russian Orthodox Church and Russian Orthodoxy as a, a marker of the Rus people. This is, after all, the Stalinist uh, and, and Soviet repression of the church. And so one of Vladimir Putin's closest associates is the patriarch uh, in Moscow. And so it's very, very interesting. But just, just 
put that on hold. In the East, in the East, mystery takes a center role in worship. Mystery. Eastern Orthodox worship is dark, big cavernous dark buildings with candles. It's priestly. It is sacerdotal. Yes, it is also it is also uh, intended to be a Christian statement of mystery, in which there are parts speakable and parts unspeakable. Uh, we don't have any unspeakable parts. We actually, and by the way, the Protestant believers and theologians on the issue of worship will make very clear that even though silence may have a role, we don't really have unspeakable parts. And it's because the Holy Spirit does the speaking. In other words, it's a, we don't, we don't have, we're not trying to reach emptiness here. We're, we're trying to fill with gospel scriptural content. It's a very, it's a very different thing. But there's just, I mean, with the incense and the prayers and the there, it, it, it's, it's, it's very cultic, and I mean that we'll little see, that's not an insult, it's just very cultic with a cultus that, uh, that has developed an orthodoxy. So we're going to put that to the side, because that has very little influence on what we do. There's some, there's some hymns we sing that do come from the East, uh, but, and, and, but that's rare. And by the way, they tend to be highly Christological. The hymns we sing from the East tend to be very highly Christological. Okay, let's go back to the West. That's, that's, that's our family. Back to the West, what you have is the, is the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church following sacramental worship, priestly worship. And what happens in the medieval period is that that worship becomes more ritualized in the Mass the mass is both mystery and declaration. But there's a clear distinction between the people and the priesthood. That sacerdotal ministry, clear distinction between the people and the priesthood. All of the major worship is done by the priests. Even listen to the language. The people attend the mass. Did you go to mass? The priests do the mass. So there's a distinction that immediately, if you have good Protestant ears, your ears are immediately irritated and say, I think we had a Reformation over that. That's exactly right. So you have not come to attend worship, brothers and sisters. You've come to worship. But we're back to the Roman Catholic uh, practice of worship. Much of it was unintelligible. Now, it, it, to be fair to the Catholic it's just because we want to be fair. To be fair, it wasn't meant to be unintelligible. It just became so. So, the phrase hocus pocus is related to magic. It's hocus corpum est. It's, a, it's the words of institution from the Lord's Supper. This is my body. Uh, and, uh, and but, but the priests mumbled it. They just mumbled it. So if you, and, and one of the interesting things, so one of the big shifts in history historiography, and I know Mary is thinking right now, the longer you go into this, the less time for the questions that you said you were going to, was a discussion. I understand that, but I hope this is fun as you're thinking about this. But one of the big shifts in history has been from grand narrative to what the French call petite history, which means little history. So, like, how would a 10-year-old boy in peasant France understand the Mass? He wouldn't understand much. 
So in the 20th century, the Annales School of History from France and others, they would, they would like, so let's, let's redo history from a milk, the perspective of a milkmaid in Wittenberg. What, what was the Reformation to her? It's, by the way, largely a postmodern invention because we don't have a whole lot of historical record about this 10-year-old boy who was a peasant in France. But we can recreate, it's, it's, they're interesting questions, we can recreate it. Number one, he would have gone to Mass, he would have been taken to Mass, he would have very little idea of what's going on. He would be told, don't worry about that, because it's all through the stages of confirmation. He's already been baptized, so according to the Catholic Church, he's already saved. He, he, he's in the church because of infant baptism and that sacrament of entry. And, and so he will be confirmed later on, uh, which is on the way to his own participation uh, in the Mass. But his own participation in the Mass is very limited. It's, it's limited to receiving the host, the, 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 the bread, uh, which they believe has been tr transubstantiated. And uh, if, you, if you, well, I'm not going to say this. Uh, if, uh, if, if you want to see how this works out, there is a scene uh, in, uh, in, in a, a movie, and it has just left me, and this is the problem. It's about a little boy growing up in Ireland. I'll think of it eventually. It was a bestseller during the, uh, the, the 90s. And uh, anyway, it's this little boy, he's confirmed, and he, he understands transubstantiation. So the, 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 the bread has been turned into the body of Christ, and, and then he has a confirmation lunch, and he gets overly excited. And I know this is Sunday morning, but understand, he, he vomits and loses his, his lunch. He ate too much. Little boys do that. But unfortunately, the transubstantiated body of Christ went with it which leads to a complete theological crisis. And the, the great thing about seeing that scene is Protestants all of a sudden go, oh my goodness, they mean this. And so the traditionalist Catholic grandmother is in an absolute panic. She sends the little boy back to the priest and he has to go to confession. He had to go to confession before his first communion. And he did like little boy sins, he confessed. Well, he's back. And the priest goes, you're back already. He says, yes. What had happened? I ate too much and I vomited Jesus up on my Grammy's lawn. And, uh, and so he says, what do I do? And he says, your granny sent you. He said, yes. He goes, just wash it down with water. So he goes back and says, the priest said, just wash it down with water. The Grammy slaps him on this little red head and says, stupid lad, go back and ask him, holy water or regular water? So, you know, he goes back into the confessional, sits down, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been four minutes since my last confession. And the priest says, what is it now? My Grammy wants to know holy water or regular water. He says, tell her regular water, and the next time, send herself. Uh, but you look at this, and you think, okay, these wor this worship has consequences. This worship has consequences. I mentioned uh, St. George's Chapel at Windsor, where... John Knox stared down King Edward VI, the reforming king, about him allowing priests to continue to genuflect to the altar because you genuflect to someone. And it was the body of Christ, transubstantiated. John Knox said, you don't believe in transubstantiation. You, you, your, uh, your, your book of worship uh, forbids it, so you should not allow the priest to genuflect. So, yes, again, a very brave thing to say to a king. But all that to say... Uh, th this all gets tied together. The Roman Catholic 
mass with all of its intelligibility, unintelligibility, but the distance from the people, the people simply come up, they receive, they have attended mass. The mass is actually being conducted by a priesthood. It belongs to the church. The priesthood is the church. And then along comes the Reformation. Step by step. Again, Luther didn't jump into the deep end of the pool until he was thrown into the deep end of the pool by two things, the logic of Scripture and the Reformation, as the questions unfolded and the response of the church. He was calling for a reform of the church. The church didn't want to be reformed. He was asked about the basis and the authority of his declarations of what the church should be, and he was driven back to Scripture. He was driven to sola scriptura because he eventually had no other place to go. Because he's standing over against the practice of the church. He's using scripture to correct norm, normative principle. He's using church. He's using the, the, the scriptures to norm the church. Um, same thing's true of justification by faith alone. All the solas of the Reformation are where the reformers got backed into by the logic of their arguments drawn from scripture. And that's why we're here. But we, think, we didn't think that went far enough. Geneva... Reformed worship. That's what they actually call it. The reformed worship of the Church of Christ in Geneva. That's it. So, in other words, it's so radically different, you've got to make clear, if you come, you're not expecting a mass. And so, they just use the language, reformed worship. Luther, before Calvin, of course, in in historical order, Luther recovered much of uh, worship, apostolic worship, we believe, New Testament worship, in the, uh, the liturgy of Wittenberg. But uh, it was never regulated as much as would later happen in Geneva. And, and it didn't go as far. Luther kept and left some things. So, for instance, if you go into the Marienkirche in Wittenberg, where Luther did most of his preaching, there's art everywhere. And a lot of that art was there from the time of Luther. Uh, and, and there can be vestments, there can be all kinds of things. Luther allowed the continuation of certain holy days, holidays, that, uh, that in Geneva could never have happened. Luther allowed the Germans to continue to practice some Marian holidays, that is, some of the festival days attached to the Virgin Mary. And, uh, and, and it's just a very different kind of thing. It was, it was reformed. We need to give Luther credit. It was reformed. The word was at the center. The gospel was at the center uh, but, again, even in terms of the distinction between Wittenberg and Geneva and Zurich over the question of presence or real presence, uh, bodily presence in the, uh, in the Eucharist, in the Lord's Supper, that was all still a matter of, of difference that continues today. Fast forward to Geneva. Geneva trims everything down. The windows must be clear. No stained glass. The organ must go. Organ associated with, uh, the, in, in his mind, with the Catholic worship uh, and with drowning out the congregation. So you, you come to hear the organ, you're not hearing the congregation sing. And so the Psalter, the Genevan Psalter, because here's where, as we think about our conversations, where a lot of it comes down, what do you sing? Colossians, Psalms, we know what those are, hymns, and uh, that raises an interesting question. What's hymn and spiritual songs? Well, hymns were a thing, to use one English parlance these days. They were a thing. Because remember that after the uh, disciples had gathered together, they sang a hymn. Okay, so they, they, have, they have a hymn. 
the Gospel of Matthew. Well, what is a hymn? What seems to define a hymn, and this is just very short, what seems to define a hymn is that it is a song drawn from Scripture set to a metrical frame, a metrical structure. So a hymn can be staffed out in music, as you see, in a hymnal, and it's, uh, it, it follows a metric structure. Now, why the metric structure? Okay, well, let's just back up and say that will have to be a different time for our consideration, but the goal of most of metrical music is to match the musical structure of the universe. Notes. Uh, measures, beats, rhythm, um, repetition, these things, all drawn from a musical architecture that is believed to be uh, in, in the cosmos it, itself. And so there are rules for hymnody. Now, are there hymns in the scripture? Yes, I believe there are. I, I think we, we find some of the hymnic structures, some of the, some of the even metrical structures, no notes, but metrical structures we find in the New Testament. Uh, questionably, uh, is looking at it, uh, something like Philippians chapter 2, for example, which is metrical and, and could well be an early Christian hymn. But, of course, it's in the Scripture, so we receive it as the Scripture, whether it's a hymn or not. Hymns in the Protestant tradition. Hymns in the Protestant tradition are highly metrical. Uh, they are intended to be a singular statement. So a hymn is about something. And uh, a hymn is to be a singular statement drawn from scriptural truth set to a metrical frame to be sung by the congregation. That last part is very important, to be sung by the congregation. It is not to be heard. It's not an oratorio. It is, uh, it, it is not a, a showpiece. It, is, uh, it has to be within the human vocal range. A hymn is only a hymn if it meets those criteria and is within the human vocal range. Okay. In our tradition, let's fast forward. And so when I say our, let's just kind of track through. So we are more primitivist than the Church of England. Primitivist meaning we want to get back to the New Testament essentials. We want to, we want to, we want to be a New Testament church in a sense that is more reformed than the Church of England was, although much of our worship continues into much of their worship, Anglican worship, continues. The, the prayer book of 1552 and revised most importantly in, in 1562, frames much of our worship in ways most Protestants are unaware. In the English-speaking tradition, the, the Book of Common Prayer of the Church of England. Now, someone like John Bunyan, totally against prayer book worship. That didn't mean he was against the truths within the prayer book. It meant that he was against the prayer book being uh, imposed uh, upon the service, usually to the detriment of preaching. That was usually the concern to the detriment of preaching. As the Baptist tradition comes out of nonconformity and out of the separatist tradition, the Baptists were keen to say, we are continuing Protestants. Now, they don't want to use that term. They didn't, it wasn't, they didn't say we're continuing Protestants. They wanted to make that statement without you could say, using those words. So, for instance, one of the earliest Baptist creeds coming out of Baptists in London was the Orthodox Creed, which is a way of saying we're with them. The main confession of faith that has come into American Baptist life, it's the absolute root of the abstractive principles at Southern Seminary of the Philadelphia Charleston traditions, uh, is the Westminster Confession of Faith. So we in the Presbyterians just share so much 
uh, in, in terms of worship. If you go to Presbyterian worship and you go to Baptist worship, you may see low church, mid church, high church, but in the main, it's going to be extremely similar. There will be some differences you'll notice. They use the word communion, uh, by and large, for the Lord's Supper. We use the phrase the Lord's Supper. That's a distinction with a difference uh, because we have an even more non-sacramental view than, uh, than, than many Presbyterian or Reformed churches. What about our music? Where does it come from? The sources of our music are the Protestant Reformation, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, the, the majestic hymns coming out of the Reformation, and then the evangelical revivals that came through. And one of the most important of those traditions is, uh, is German pietism. So hymn writers like Paul Gerhardt, uh, that ends with a D, sounds like a T. Uh, you, many of his hymns are in our hymnal. They work their way in through uh, German pietism, especially that most closely allied with the Reformation. Most of our hymns are from the English-speaking tradition, so jump over the channel, go to England, and uh, waves of hymn writing that, uh, that broke out, especially in the post-Reformation church. By the time you get to the 17th and 18th century, you have uh, hymnals. I have several editions in my library of the earliest uh, Protestant hymnals. And, uh, and things like Isaac Watts' uh, uh, hymnal, I just uh, actually was able to get a, a, a wonderful copy just this, this past week. Uh, there are no notes in it. There's no music in it. There, there is meter in it. And so there'll, there'll be a metrical number given with the text, and, and that's the meter of the thing. And so you, someone trained in music simply sees the metrical structure and then knows how to have a congregation sing the hymn. Now, in a lot of the notes and other things, that meant the melody could have sounded different from one church to another because you, you, what you have is meter and structure uh, sometimes attached to tune. As you look at your hymnal today, if you look at a hymnal today, you'll notice usually there's given a composer and, and the, uh, the, the, the author of the text, and sometimes people confuse which is which, but you can look at it there. Hymns are still given names. So in, in our tradition, that's how different churches and different places, that's how you could communicate uh, a, a name. So you, you, the hymn tune was given a name. Uh, and, and so different, different churches can know, okay, I know that tune. Fast forward again. You come to the United States, you come to our tradition. The second great awakening in the period from the, the late 18th, early 19th century also gave an explosion of hymnody. So the evangelical revival in Britain and the English-speaking world, huge explosion uh, on that side of the Atlantic, huge explosion on this side of the Atlantic, especially after the Second Great Awakening. And then the distinction in our world between Sunday school songs and hymns or what were called gospel songs and hymns. And you may not know that distinction, but it would have been, it was an incredible part of my childhood. So in my childhood, we had gospel songs and we had hymns. The Baptist hymnal of 1956, which is kind of the, the classic statement, high watermark of Southern Baptist uh, hymn uh, Compilation, and it, w it was like the Book of Common Prayer of the Southern Baptist Convention, basically. It, it was that influential. I was given my own precious copy with my name stamped in gold foil on the front when I graduated from the Crusader Choir to the Youth Choir. And uh, so that's how formal all of this was. And I grew up in a tall steeple, very formal church. 
and so formal that a 12-year-old boy had his own copy of the hymnal with his name stamped on the front in gold and with a note in it signed by the uh, director of music. Sunday school songs were written for evangelistic purposes and they were to be sung with gusto. There is a name I love to hear, I love to sing its worth. Oh, how I love Jesus. That was not a hymn. It's not metrical in the same sense that a hymn is. It is rhythmic and and it it is lyrical, but it's not metrical in the same sense. And it is very experiential. It starts with I. Uh, so there's a subjective element, and so many of these Sunday school songs and these revival songs, you have Ira Sankey working with, uh, uh, with Moody, D.O. Moody. You had many other Sunday school songwriters and others. You had uh, an, an entire genre of music where Southern gospel met Sunday school songs, uh, and you had a couple of guys who worked together. And uh, so if you went... Not in my church. My church was much more formal. But if you were in, like, even most of the churches of the Southern Baptist Convention, you would have heard and sung a lot of Sunday school songs or, or, or uh, spiritual songs or revival songs written by the, the band, uh, I say band, I, mean, I, I just mean duo, of uh, Stamps, uh, well, you could put this, the name Stamps Baxter. And... Uh, and others aligned with the Stamps-Baxter movement. And, and you say, well, I don't think I know any of that music. Oh, I promise you, you do. Uh, if, you, if you have grown up much in American Christianity, you'll know some of the, you know, songs like, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. There's an enormous amount of spiritual truth uh, in, in, in much of this, this uh, Sunday school music. Uh, by the time... I was in high school and was a part of a church in South Florida. There was a combination of hymnody and the Sunday school songs or the gospel songs, and they were just all called hymns. So you could sing, you could sing either one of these. And uh, yet, what we do mostly here are hymns. And uh, we even the uh, even the newer music we sing, even if it's not as metrical traditionally as a hymn, although most of it is it will be less subjective and more objective. And so that, that's, that's one of the issues that, that we've seen. The uh, regulative principle, well, can you have an organ or not? We don't. Well, we clearly could, because we're not non-instrumental. Again, there are instruments up there. So we have decided, and I, I'm not suggesting we had a meeting. This church is a part of a tradition and uh, simply assumes that a guitar is a circumstance, not an element. And uh, Mary and I were at a church just a few weeks ago where we both never seen this before, but there was some percussive instrument that was being used as the main issue. And I mean, it wasn't a drum. It was something being patted. Uh, and uh, I think it's the best way I know to put it. And uh, it was, we'd never seen this thing before. It was a black box, but it was evidently a sophisticated black box. It could do many things patted different ways. And, and, and again, you look at this and say, okay, that's, that's, that's new. Uh, piano, organ. By the way, I am, I'm just an unabashed appreciator of the pipe organ. One of the reasons why is because tr- 
I consider myself a traditional Protestant that sees the organ as a way of teaching a congregation to sing. And it has to, you have to hear the congregation. But congregations, especially men, don't naturally sing and don't naturally know how to sing. They have to be led. This is one of the reasons why, practically, there are instruments up here. And, and there are also people singing whose voices you can hear. It is because we have to find where we are in there, <laughs> what is in our vocal range, and, and do that. I grew up in a, like I say, a situation where I was in every choir. I, was in every, I, I can find that part. But you have younger people who have no such experience in, in this. And the instrument, the organ, most importantly, because the organ, whether you think about it or not, the organ, the main thrust of an organ is in the human vocal range. That, uh, that's what makes the organ so amenable to worship. Okay. So do you have a solo or not? Is that a circumstance or is that a violation of an element? Uh, the bottom line is, is that well, can you have a choir or not? And the, the issue is there is ongoing debate over these issues. And most churches just pretty much have to decide what, what theologically we should seek to do is to avoid anything that detracts the congregation from worship and, and is pseudo-entertainment or just flat entertainment. But the sad thing is, as you look around us, most of the churches around us have, are regulated by nothing other than whatever they decide to do. So I'm going to stop and uh, find out what, uh, what issues you might like to, to raise about uh, this whole world of issues. Yeah? Yes. Um, I've met many people who have grown up in more contemporary Baptist churches, which yeah. don't necessarily follow regular principles, who have yeah. left the Baptist tradition out of mm-hmm. aggravation with that not to right. liturgical Protestant churches. Right. So how can we urge people like that, friends like that, to stay Baptist while acknowledging that many of our churches don't follow this regular yeah, well, I think uh, uh, being a healthy church, you know, Christopher, in large part, just be, and, and doing what we do is the kind of testimony to that. And uh, I, I don't think there's a better way, other than a recovery of biblical worship among Baptists. And, uh, and this is not just something limited to the Baptists. I mean, there, there are people way, way, way out there... Uh, and I think this, the average kind of pan-evangelical church is unbound, uh, unregulated in worship. Um, it's, a good, it's a good question. I think building instincts in, by the way, I, I think if you've been a member of this church for four or five years and you go to another church, you're, whether, you, whether, you, whether you're articulating all this in your mind or not, you're recognizing this is, this is just not what I was doing, what we were doing the God-centeredness of it. What else comes to mind? Yeah. Yeah, so um, one of the unique kind of divisions between East and West fighting was Mm -hmm. bread, right? Right. Yeah, so far as I can tell, that may have been issued as an issue of principle, but overarchingly is treated as an issue of circumstance. Uh, so I have been, I have been in 
regulative principle reformed churches and Baptist churches that have done both? Uh, it's a good question. Yeah. Be interesting to know if you ask the people in those churches how they came to that conclusion or if it is even a principial issue. Yes. It's an interesting question. We just don't have New Testament evidence of exactly what those are. But we we have some early church evidence, but it doesn't doesn't help us a whole lot. Uh, But where you're headed is, I think, what most people would think, and and that is it's a song with a spiritual theme and, you know, carries spiritual content. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm thankful that the word spiritual precedes song. So it, it, it's clearly a, 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 it's measured by its content, not just by its kind of aspiration. But that is the most awkward of, of the Colossian formula. It's just hard to know. I mean, anyone can say I've written a spiritual song. Whether it's appropriate for worship may be another thing. But I would say some of what we sing are spiritual songs here. We, we sing things that aren't quite as, met, they don't fit the metrical structure of a hymn. I mean, some of them are called contemporary hymns. They would fail the structural hymn test, but they would pass the uh, the content test hugely. Yeah. Uh, so back uh, on the college student union, back on like the Reformed Presbyterian Church. Yeah. Uh, and they practiced uh, acapella only, no instrument. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yes, that's exactly it. So we would say that we are held to the regulative principle, but that the use of an instrument is a circumstance, not an element. And, and by the way, I'm, just, I'm convinced that's the right argument because I, I, I can't see how on a New Testament basis you can make instruments either an element or not. Um, so long as it, by the way, accompanies, most importantly, it accompanies the singing and is an aid to that singing. And again, I can respect, this is like one of those things, I can respect people who say, I'm going to not do that because I'm afraid it may be outside bounds. I respect that more than the people who say, uh, yeah, let's try it. See if we get anything spiritual out of it. You know, and, and that's some subjective test. Yes. Yes, absolutely. It should be the congregation singing. And that is a profound result of the Reformation. You, you, to hear the congregation is a profound Reformation recovery, I believe, of apostolic Christianity, so that we, we, we sing together. So. The, the question is, how does the congregation sing most robustly? And so if you are in an a cappella church, that, that congregation really has to be taught to sing uh, more than our congregation is taught to sing. Our congregation is taught to sing by singing. I know every once in a while, 
our music elder holds a thing on how to ring a how to sing a hymn. Uh, but but by and large, we teach by singing. And we come back first. Yeah, you. Sorry. Yes. Well, I think that there are those who have used it that way, but you know, just in terms of exegesis, that is intended as an amplification of what came before, not a generalization. You know, so I think just taking Paul as a and, and Colossians as a text, uh, that's a that's taking outward inward, but it's not you know just trying to say, okay, well, forget everything I just said. Whatever you do. You know, have a good intention. It's a good point, though, because, yes, you do hear people say that. Yes? In the Psalms? Yeah, that's where, in the Reformation perspective, and, and again, you've got Luther, that whole tradition, then you've got the, the Reformed tradition coming out of Geneva. Remember that one of the hallmarks of the Genevan Reformation is a far more appreciative use of the Old Testament than you had in the, in the Lutheran Reformation. But a covenantal theology and, and a reading of Scripture that meant that many things passed away from the, from the Old Testament. They were, they were forms, shadows, anticipations, and frankly, aberrations. So I mentioned David dancing before the ark. You know, Calvin would say... You don't see the disciples dancing before anything, you know, uh, profoundly not. Uh, what about, what about you know, instruments? You know, where, where is there any instrument, you know, here? And we have to admit that sometimes our con- cultural context is such that we can't imagine anything other than what we know. So, for instance, in... In Luther's Wittenberg, and, and if you go to Eisleben or Eisenach, any of the great Luther, or Wittenberg, if you look at any of the great Luther sites, you're going to find Luther with, depicted, uh, for instance, in the great Luther monument in Eisenach. You're, you're going to see Luther depicted leading his family in song, playing a lute, which is a stringed instrument. Luther was known as a very, very fine instrumentalist. And he taught his children to sing. And uh, hymnody was a part of their home. And, and so Luther, you could, you could just bring that in. I mean, you have an instrument in the home. And it's just so much a part of life, it was not considered. And, and look, we do some of the same things. I mean, you know, the, you cannot possibly understand yourself well enough to know what is simply being brought because we, we don't know. But again, he held to a more normative understanding. There's nothing to prevent this. And so you could have the pipe organ, you could have, and, and that would be in worship. And, and so, so far as I know, you did not have a lute in worship. And, and a part of the justification to be used there is, look, the organ is human vocal range. It's intended to bring out the human vocal range in a way that can lead people together in majestic worship. That would be the explanation. Yes? They have 
somewhat adapted to Protestant pressure, and uh, they have developed some hymns, but hymns are awkward in the Mass. Uh, they just, it, it's kind of like it's, they're clearly added to the Mass. And, uh, and by the way, I'm going to have to, I, I can tell that we're about to be cast out, <laughs> or more likely joined by others, brothers and sisters. But if you look at many of the Catholic hymns, uh, it's just interesting, many of them are national, and many of them are anti-Protestant. And so we sing a Catholic song against Protestants, which we've kind of edited, Faith of Our Fathers. That was an Irish hymn against the, the, the Protestant reformers. The fathers were the Catholic martyrs to the Protestants. And we sing it, you know, in here. I was a little boy, I sang it. I had no idea the background to it. Uh, but there just, isn't a, there just isn't that much Catholic hymnody, and it's awkward in their worship because they just don't have today a very clear congregational purpose. So I went to, I'll just finish with this. I went to, uh, I stepped into a mass at St. Patrick's Cathedral. I've done this all over the world, but I, can, I think the most interesting to me was I stepped into a mass at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City. And as I'm observing it, there is a choir singing uh, this hymn, and there are people who are listening to it, but almost no one is singing it. And uh, I don't think they saw it as a problem. May we worship God rightly. May we worship Him in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. It's been an honor to think about these things with you today. And uh, once you think about them, you'll think about them often in worship. And uh, just be reminded, we should do nothing by accident. All things rule by the Word of God. All right. Next week, Lord willing, we will turn to the clean and the unclean in Leviticus chapter 11. And trust me, it is going to be beyond fascinating. All right. Father, we pray you'll bless this time together and bless our worship that follows. In the name of Christ, amen.